from the Zimmerman Symphony Center in Canton, Ohio, this is Orchestrating Change. I'm Matthew Jenkins Yarashevitz, Associate Conductor of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. And I'm Rachel Hegemeyer, Manager of Education and Community Engagement. Welcome to Season 3 of our podcast. We are so glad you could join us. This podcast navigates issues that exist in the field of classical music and the world at large. We invite you to listen with open ears as our guests share their experiences and as we discuss these often avoided topics. We are joined today in studio by Quinn Mason, a composer and conductor based in Dallas. Writing for orchestra, wind ensemble, chamber ensembles, and more, Quinn has had his compositions played all over the world by ensembles such as the Dallas Symphony, Memphis Symphony, and San Francisco Symphony. As a conductor, Quinn has worked with Orchestra Seattle, Musica Nova, and the Greater Dallas Youth Orchestra. At only 25 years of age, he is already making a huge impact on the industry. He has now a Canton connection with his Irish dance suite having been performed by the Canton Symphony Orchestra. Quinn Mason, welcome to Orchestrating Change. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. Um, we've both had the pleasure of being able to meet you right before now. Um, so would you mind just telling us a little bit about you, like how you grew up? What were you like as a kid? All that good stuff from the very beginning. Uh, well, quite certain I was not a very good kid. <laughs> all, we all weren't very good kids, but many of us creative types, I'd Bad say kids. especially certainly would say we the well, same thing. <laughs> it's quite interesting. I didn't really discover that I was creative until I was like 10. And, you know, that's kind of late to be a child prodigy at that point. And I, I was aware of it. I was 10 years old going, yeah, you know, that Mozart started earlier and things like that. But, you know, it's okay. But, late to the game. <laughs> well, yeah, and like uh, really discovered my creative kind of fire, I would have to say, in elementary school. Um, where um, I took a required piano class. It was, you know, you have to take it for a grade and things like that. So naturally, people didn't want to be in there. But <laughs> actually, I wanted to um, uh, see if I could stretch myself, you know. I had never tried an instrument before. I had been listening to classical music for a few years at that point. It was something I found on my own. And I wanted to try something different, and I wanted to see how music was constructed from the ground up. Mm -hmm. So I went to that class and uh, progressed fairly quickly on the piano, actually. Um, I know the um, piano teacher gave out awards annually in um, one year, the year 2007. I got one for excellence in piano, uh -huh. and with that came an opportunity to perform side-by-side -side with my teacher in a special um, concert for the school. And we played Haydn's Surprise Symphony. <laughs> you know, I, I had the easy part. <laughs> and somehow still messed it up. But it was a really cool opportunity. That that was the very first time I had performed in front of a crowd when I was 10. Yeah. And so um, from there, um, 
and I still play the piano. Uh, I learned more, and I still play. And then sometime after that, I started cello lessons. And um, I no longer play the cello, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But that really gave me some ensemble experience. I played in an or orchestra for four years. Uh, back backstand, of course, because <laughs> I never practiced. <laughs> but um, just, you know, being in that was my very first time playing with other people. And uh, from there, really, I found my way into composition uh, through not practicing. Instead of practicing the etudes that my teacher would give me, I would write my own etudes and oh. practice those. And then basically snitch on myself and take them to my teacher and said, you know, so this is what I was doing instead of practicing, you know. <laughs> One day I did take one of those compositions to my teacher. It was like a cello solo. You know, I was writing it and going, hmm, let me see if I can get my teacher to play this. So I took it to her, and she actually tried to sight read it. And um, uh, it was quite interesting being there that young and hearing something that I had written come alive, you know, something that didn't exist before I put it in front of the performer, you know. And there's just a certain special kind of magic to that, that I discover, you know, each time I work with an orchestra or a different performer, you know, it's like the music doesn't exist until you put it in front of the performer and then it exists in its own unique way. Like the way that the Toledo Symphony played Irish Dance Suite is unique and different from the way Canton Symphony has played it, you know? And so um, with that kind of, that kind of ground work, I would have to say, really set the the kind of the tune almost yeah. to really wanting to explore composition more. Um, and so uh, I did a lot of self-study. I had some mentors that gave me scores and things like that, recordings. So uh, from an early age, I was ex exposed to the Beethoven symphonies, the Mozart, you know, the, the standard repertoire. And on top of that, I was uh, supplemented that by one of my mentors taking me to rehearsals of the Dallas Symphony Orchestra, mm -hmm. which is my local orchestra. And so I got to see those very same pieces come to life in front of me, you know, via people on the stage. And so from there, I actually heard many large masterworks for the first time, like uh, the Symphony Fantastique of Berlioz mm -hmm. and my all-time favorite piece of music, The Rite of Spring of Stravinsky. And so with all that, um, especially going to the Dallas Symphony rehearsals, then that kind of sparked an interest in conducting because this was during the, the era of Jat von Sveten, who until recently was music di musical director of the New York Philharmonic. Now we don't know where he's going, but he was, I was there throughout his entire tenure with Dallas, so I got to hear exactly how he changed the orchestra and things like that, plus guest um, conductors and things like that. So, But more about that later. Yeah. And um, uh, more self-study. I took my very first composition lesson at age 13. And it really paid off my senior year of high school when uh, I won a composition contest that was sponsored by the American Composers Forum mm -hmm. called the Next Notes High School Composition Award. Um, it was the very first year they had done it, too. It was a national contest. They received uh, 240 applications nationwide, and they only took six people. And I was one of the six people. So it was a big deal, yeah. you know. And it kind of, I definitely credit that with the launch of my career and the, uh, a very 
my very first real look into the life of a composer because, you know, as part of that award, which I won with a brass quartet, uh, we traveled to Minneapolis where uh, they're based, and we got to work with professional performers uh, closely. You know, we had individual rehearsals with them and everything, and we presented all of our works in a concert. And so it was a very, very fun experience and something I definitely wanted to do on a higher level. And so um, from there, came back home, started receiving more and more uh, commissions, uh, received my very first orchestral commission at age 22 uh, from the Dallas Symphony, my local orchestra. Uh, it was premiered successfully two years after that. Um, and I received another commission from them. But in the meanwhile, I started working with all these other different orchestras like the South Bend Symphony, which is in Indiana. And um, uh, I think, the, yeah, the Mission Chamber Orchestra, based in California. And it seems to have spread like wildfire since then, because uh, more and more conductors see their conducting friends doing my pieces, and they're like, who is this guy? So they end up doing it too. So, uh, you know, one conductor tells 10 of their friends, and then their friends look at what they're programming, and like, okay, let me get that. Uh. And so they end up programming it too. And so, you know, from there, my pieces have been to the Memphis Symphony, the Utah Symphony, um, uh, the San Francisco Symphony. And they've been around the world. Um, uh, actually, they've been to Scotland and the Nevis Ensemble. Mm -hmm. And they've been to Italy with the uh, Italian National Radio Orchestra. And, you know, just a lot of performances back here at home with different youth orchestras, things like that. Um, it was quite fast. It all happened quite fast. But um, orchestral music is something I love uh, writing, and I'm very happy to see all of these performances happening. Yeah. So from a required piano class to <laughs> Canton, Ohio. Hey. <laughs> I have to ask, at no point did you mention attending a conservatory. Was that not part of your musical journey? Well, it wasn't a conservatory, per se. I did attend college. I had a very weird college career. Uh, I started community college a week after I graduated high school, did that two years, then transferred into a school of music, specifically the TCU School of Music ah, for a yes. year. Uh, found that it wasn't a fit for me, and then from there transferred into SMU ah. as a non-degree student, did that for two years, and finished there right before the pandemic began. And so... You know, just to be honest, I don't have a degree in anything. I've just spent five years in higher education uh, learning, getting opportunities, networking, and things like that. Um, but, you know, all of the, the credits just transferred, you know, they and just wasn't never in a degree program. But, you know. Yeah, very interesting. Well, it's nonetheless, it's, it's worked out for you yeah. very well so far. I hope so. I was just curious. It, it was, it's... It's always fascinating for me to hear the different life journeys people take to get where they are. Yeah. So, yeah, you kind of just took us through like this whole, you know, compositional journey that's, you know, as you said, happened very fast. It kind of, you know, I mean, for you, yeah, you know, you started composing when you were 10, but all these commissions and all this stuff that has been happening. Can you kind of give us a little bit of a, you know, a backseat view of what it's like to actually get a commission happening? Like, how did you get that first commission from the Dallas Symphony? Like, what actually goes into, do they just reach out out of the blue? Or like, how did that actually start happening? That was the result of a connection I made when I was very, very young. Um, 
my mentor used to t- take me to these uh, community concerts. Mm-hmm. And uh, at these community concerts, she would um, ask me, well, I would ask, she, w- she had a friend, uh, his name is Don Stone. Um, he's in his 90s now. But back then, uh, he used to attend these concerts, and she used to sit me next to him. And then I would um, make conversation with him and, I guess, entertain him with facts about the music that <laughs> I had learned from books and things like that. And he found that very fascinating. So I was very small when I met him, and he kind of watched me grow as a composer. And... Um, he was also one of the, uh, he used to be the president of the Dallas Symphony way back in the 80s and things like that. So, But now he's like a board member. And his wife and him, they run a, um, uh, what they call a new music fund. So they've commissioned major composers oh. like Aaron J. Kernis. Uh, they've commissioned uh, Julia Wolf mm. uh, and things like that. Um, and one, one year they commissioned me. Um, So they ran that new music fund and they said, it's time, basically. (laughs) And they gave me that commission at age 22, which took me two years to complete. But it was very successfully premiered and it it was a gamble that paid off, I would have to say. Wow. That's very, very cool. And we did that twice. And again, so did they just reach out? Did did (laughs) your mentor just say, hey, Hey. we have this commission fund and you're up this year? (laughs) Something like that. Yeah. yeah. It was, they wow. were, they were, they were watching me to see what, what quality of work I was doing. So, mm-hmm. you know, right. if I wasn't doing good work, I probably wouldn't have <laughs> received that commission. Okay. So I, I guess my hard work paid off. Yeah. That is very, very, very cool. And then the subsequent ones have just. It's a snowball come up effect. after that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's all of, you know, they look at what that did and then. You know, they look at it and they go, okay, so this guy can actually write. (laughs) And so it's usually, I've discovered, you know, promotion and getting your name out there varies differently from composer to composer. But for me, it's mostly been word of mouth in real life. So it's mostly just the result of people telling other people about me. Like, I don't know how Gerhardt heard of my Irish dance week. I know it was done in Toledo, but I don't know if he was there. I know why he heard of it. How? I found it. Maddie found it. I found it. (laughs) Yes. And I I was hoping that he might, as a result of me finding it, offer it to me to conduct. How did you find it? But uh, Google search. A Google yeah. search. What did you? What did you? So, okay. What did so you type into is, Google? This is a very good. <laughs> this is a very good segue here because the the podcast that we are that you are a guest on today was of course started by the Canton Symphony by all of us last year, originally in response to the George Floyd protests, and we decided to think very long and hard about what we could do as an organization in response. And one of the ideas was of course the podcast. Then we have the first season of the podcast and we get told time and time again that representation in this industry matters so much and there simply isn't isn't much representation of people of color in this industry. And so one of the things that we all realized we can do right now is we can at least program more music by minority composers. That is a decision that we all can make. Other things take more time. So we started searching 
and for both historical composers of color as well as living composers of color. And you come up at the top of a Google search. And so then- When did you search to get me at the top? I don't remember exactly, <laughs> but I went to your website and I listened to a bunch of your recordings. I was like, I really, really like this guy's music. We need to, we need to do something of his. Yeah. And so then, furthermore, when Michelle was saying, you know, November, the second classical of the season, we need to make it small because it's the fall, it's gonna be colder, cases might start going back up yeah. again, and then it ended up being a string-only concert. And so that's when I said, okay, so over the summer, <laughs> I discovered this composer named Quinn Mason, and he has a piece called Irish Dance Suite for String Orchestra, and it is a great piece, and I know our audience will love it, and I think it would make a great addition to that program. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. This is how we found you. <laughs> well. I, you know, I, we mentioned your website. I've spent, you know, I looked at your website, and you have a, a blog where you talk a lot about a lot of very different topics, which I'm going to dive into each of them a little bit as we go along, but you have one um, article that you wrote called My Inner City Rhapsody. Um, and you said in it, what did you say? You said, for the longest time, I've wanted to make an artistic statement from the point of view of a composer from the inner city because I realized that isn't a view represented in the concert hall often. And I was wondering if you could talk about that. And, you know, this is the piece that you, I think you wrote it for the Dallas Symphony, if I'm, if I'm remembering. That was my correct. first commission. Yeah. So I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. And when, when you were like, oh, my perspective isn't being represented in the concert hall. I don't know if that was like, like a light bulb moment for you or if it's just something you, you always noticed. Um, but I, I thought that that was just a, it was a really well written and it goes into like all these really awesome musical details. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, about that, about what that statement means. Yeah, so the, even though I wrote that blog in 2019, mm -hmm. uh, the piece I worked on for two years and, and you know, this whole... Um, kind of recent trend um it wasn't really common back in 2017 um like i said i've been going to dallas symphony concerts for years and i in 2017 when i received this commission it occurred to me that i had never heard or seen a, a minority composer on e either of the programs or as a guest conductor right and it was quite interesting i kind of sat on that for a while and you know i was wondering you know I'm probably like uh, the only black composer they've commissioned in years, uh, first of all. And second of all, what can I write that is unique to uh, not only my story as a composer, but to my compositional voice as well? Mm. You know, what do I want to uh, bring to the concert hall that hasn't been done before? Mm. And so, you know, when I was coming up with ideas about that piece, um, I, I decided to kind of base it on... Um, my own story, but not me specifically, but the story of a composer, nameless, you know, um, who kind of goes through and struggles to find their own musical voice. And so that's why the composition itself is in three different parts and kind of, um, kind of tells a story how I like, you know, how I wanted to tell a story about you know, what it's like to kind of be an underrepresented voice in the, con and even on the concert, which was uh, September 
29 September 4th, 2019. Date probably doesn't matter. <laughs> Labor Day weekend or yeah. thereabouts. Yeah. yeah, but it was a community concert, first of all. So there were no program notes, Okay. Uh, unfortunately. But secondly, I was the only living person on the program, which was which was a shame, to be honest. But I thought it was really interesting, especially those who came up to me um, after my perf- the performance, after the orchestra played my piece, and I went out to the lobby to greet the public, and lots of people from different backgrounds, races, and creeds came up to me and told me their own stories of struggle, mm. not only in the inner city, but you know, in other parts of the United States as well. And I said, you know, it was that was the light bulb moment, basically, where I was like, you know, this is what I, this is why I do what I do, in order to make these stories that connect with a wide range yeah. of people. It doesn't matter if they're from a singular race or whatever um a lot of people from different backgrounds connected to it and that was it was pretty beautiful to see really that's definitely that's That's amazing yeah so i'm curious you you talked a lot about your mentor and being taken to the dallas symphony for uh, rehearsals from a very from a very young age at what point what, what age were you when you were like Nobody or almost nobody on that stage looks like me. And how did you, what was it like to realize that? Well, actually, when I was growing up, the Dallas Symphony had one black member. It was, he was a, I say was because he passed away Mm -hmm. recently. Uh, But he was in the double bass section. And I actually knew of him because uh, when I was a cellist, I was in the program he founded called Young Strings, which was actually a program uh, found it uh, for young minority musicians, mm-hmm. um, uh, string players specifically, in order to get them experience, um, you know, playing instruments in concerts and things like that. So I was in that program and I met him a few times, um, but you know, I, you know, around the time I received that commission, like I said, then you know, I noticed that the trends in programming, and then also who they were bringing in for guest conductors. Like I think. You know, before uh, our current principal guest conductor, uh, Gemma, uh, mm-hmm. came, uh, I had never seen a woman on the podium ever. Actually, no, because back in 2012, they had a female assistant They've conductor. They've had a couple female assistants, I think, through the years. At least in Dallas, they have, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they have. But, like, as far as subscription concerts, right. no way. Right. I, I had never seen any. Mm-hmm. So, and I I still haven't seen a black conductor on the podium. Well, Roderick Cox. Oh, Okay. Yeah. I, okay. Yeah, I think it's so interesting that you, um, from whatever perspective you come from, you kind of your eye goes to the thing that you identify with. You know, mm-hmm. for you, you know, the black double bass player. For me, it's like when there's a woman bassoonist, I get like, you know, I see something. You know, you see the thing that you connect with, um, which you know is why. Um, and when we were recording this, I was actually just in Dallas at the Dallas Symphony um, at the Women in Classical Music Symposium. And we talked about that very thing about how, especially in the, in the female space, uh, composers and conductors are, you know, women conductors especially are still not as, um, but, you know, even minority uh, conductors, you know, black conductors, there's not, um, there's not a lot that are being given the spotlight. There are, all, there are quite a few but those who are being given the spotlight. So I think that's, um, I think it's so cool that your piece, uh, you wrote it from the perspective of just 
any like lots of backgrounds can identify with it because I think that's the thing that brings more people to the hall is is just music that people can connect with and want to be involved in. Um, so I think I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, if you open up the meaning of something, I've right. discovered like it, and the more people that can connect to it, the better. And yeah. you know that is I think that that I've approached that in my composition mm. multiple times. Yeah. This has always been a successful formula. Yeah. So you mentioned this program, Young Strings. Mm -hmm. Yes. I know that the founder has passed away, but we talked to some people on earlier seasons of the podcast with similar programs in other cities geared toward young minority musicians mm -hmm. and often string players. Yeah. Is this program still going and what have been some of the results of its alumni so far? Well, I'm not too closely involved with it, but I can tell you they still do give concerts. Mm -hmm. and they still, um, the, the leadership has changed, but it, the, the program is still going strong, I would have to say. Mm -hmm. um, and their, their um, alumni end up being very successful recording artists. They uh -huh. go off to universities. Some of them win jobs in orchestras um, and things like that. And so they still end up playing and making careers out of music mm -hmm. because it's just such a supportive environment. At least, you know, I found when I was there, uh, it was a supportive environment and it still is based on, um, you know, their most recent concert that they, that they gave. Um, they're, they are still there. And it, it should be worth mentioning that um, these instruments that they give to the kids are, and lessons are free. Yeah. 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 That's really so cool. it's, it's, it's making it accessible to, yeah. 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 That's really, really cool. I, it, there's a lot of these programs that are going on and I, I think they're all really great. And I'm, I'm really glad that there is something like that in Dallas. Um, because I know that, you know, Dallas is a big city. <laughs> it's large. There's a lot of people there. Um, but kind of, seen all of them. <laughs> I know <laughs> it's, you know, it's, um, but kind of with this idea of you, you mentioned, um, like trends and you've, you've said that word a couple of times in the, past few years I think the classical music world has decided to take a deeper look at ourselves and what is the music that we're programming who are our guest artists who are our conductors who are our composers um, to try to make it look more like the communities that we are serving um, but and you know I, I think sometimes we might uh, there's this the, the tokenizing that can happen with different things and I'm wondering as someone who is both a very young composer and a black composer, do you feel that uh, people expect a certain thing from you when it comes to your compositions? Do they expect, do you think that, I don't know, I'm just wondering from your perspective over the past couple of years, are people, do they want like something specific from you or do you think that they're reaching out authentically and actually wanting to work with you? It's actually a really good question. Now, at first it was like, they came to me with, you know, could you write about, um, uh, the civil rights movement, and could you write about uh, what happened recently in Minneapolis? Um, but, you know, the more, uh, I, you know, they look at exactly what I'm writing and things like Irish dance suites and yeah, things like yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and the type of music I'm writing, um, they, then they just let me do whatever I want and things <laughs> like that. And so I'm starting to receive commissions that they're basically telling me, no instrumentation limit, no time limit. Um, 
this is basically they're familiar with what I you know want to what I'm do, done already and what I'm. I, I shouldn't say good at because I'm always trying to stretch my horizons and become good at something. Yeah. But even when I go to concerts and I end up meeting the donors and I end up meeting the concert goers and things like that, they're always very, very impressed with what they heard on right. stage, you know? Yeah. And, you know, most of the conductors that end up programming my pieces like Gerhardt mm-hmm. or like uh, Robert Moody do a great job of programming. Mm-hmm. So it fits um, the overall structure of the program right. and, it, and it does very well. Yeah. That's yeah, I've remarked in a radio interview I gave for this concert at what a great pairing the Irish dance suite is with the Bloch Concerto yeah. Grosso because of the third movement of that piece, which has a, a folk dance as yeah. part of the movement. I, I thought it was a really genius bit of programming yeah. on Gerhardt's part. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you're being able to just compose what you, uh, you want. That, that makes me very happy because, um, you know, the pigeonholing that could be happening um, would, yeah. That is rare, I would have to say, because, uh, you know, you keep in mind how young I am. And I do right. realize, you know, I'm not even, I'm almost to 30, you know. It scares me to think that. But um, <laughs> it's all downhill from 30, let me tell you. I hope not. I hope not. But, you know, keeping in mind how young I am, but looking at what, I'm, what I've done, mm. and this is not me, you know, toot my own horn i'm you know looking at what i've done and the the stuff i've done up to this point you know it's it's i've definitely earned yeah the right to write whatever i want oh yeah the right to write yeah Yeah. you are allowed to toot your own horn too that's okay you're allowed i don't like doing that (laughs) i know (laughs) so i will say first that Yes, I, when uh, we we found you because of a Google search for composers of color. However, I would never have recommended to Gerhardt someone whose music wasn't good. Right. Exactly. So, I mean, yeah. obviously, y- your music is wonderful, and we're just so thrilled to be yeah. playing it. Uh, I want. I'm curious. You mentioned that at first you're getting these commissions for. Uh, black specific pieces that uh uh, civil rights themed pieces Mm -hmm. did you fulfill those commissions or did you say no i'm that's not really the direction that i'm writing in right now well one of them actually um uh it was a bit of a raw emotion uh this piece uh i'm referring to my reflection on a memorial which Mm -hmm. is for string orchestra uh that piece was actually commissioned by the Dallas, it was my second commission from the Dallas Symphony uh, to be premiered on a concert of, uh, a memorial concert of victims of racial violence, which mm-hmm. was which happened November 11th, 2020. So Veterans Day of last year, they, they held that concert. Mm-hmm. And they commissioned that piece specifically for that purpose. Well, you know, because that happened not even that long ago, it was still kind of, like I said, it was raw. It, to, not only to me, but to many people. And I decided that I wanted to open up the meaning of that piece um, to memorialize many different things, not only what happened during that summer, but, you know, those we lost during the pandemic, uh, those we lost um, on Veterans Day and things like that. And that piece is open meaning, so it has um, the potential to connect to a lot of people. Well, uh, I would have to say that that, because I did that, the piece has been very successful. It's one of my most popular 
pieces of, has been played by at least eight or nine different orchestras since its premiere last year. Wow. Uh, most recent performance was uh, in New York with James Blasley in the Experiential Orchestra. Mm. Great, amazing orchestra. The Grammy winning. Yeah, yeah, they won a Grammy, yeah. Yes. But cool. the, the, I would have to say the best performance of that piece was uh, the San Francisco Symphony, and Edwin Outwater played that piece um, during this summer. And uh, Edwin uh, took it upon himself to um, introduce the piece to the audience, but at, uh, he did something that I think contributed to the success of the piece, and he asked the audience to reflect with the orchestra as they played, mm -hmm. reflect on those we lost during the pandemic, the, those that uh, a, a dear departed family member, and then I remember when I went to go take my bow in Davies Hall, uh, shook Edwin's hand, shook the principal cellist's hand. I took, I turned around, and the entire house was on its feet, oh. like uh, an entire standing ovation, and then a good review in the paper. Yeah. But, <laughs> but you know, the fact that it connected with the San Francisco audience, mm -hmm. and it connected with all of these audiences, mm -hmm. and I think I accomplished my mission. Yeah. I have to say. I love that you're taking something that, it, you know, is personal to you or something that you really care about and then making, and you're saying, hey, this is an experience I have. I want to open this up and make it so that other people can also identify with whatever piece of music that you're making it universal almost, which I think is, I that's just beautiful to me of, of you know, you know, the racial violence that's happened in the country is personal, but, you know, more so to people of color who have been directly affected by it, but taking that feeling and saying, okay, maybe you don't understand exactly what this is, but let's open this up. And I want you to reflect on your own loss that you've had. I think that that's a really unique and very cool way to just get people to feel the music a little bit deeper. I really like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at the title, Reflection on a Memorial, yeah. whose memorial? Yeah. What memorial? Yeah. So, yeah. Very, very cool. So you are obviously very young, still fairly young, still. Really? No, I'm and, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and you are coming of age in the music world at a, at a time of a great change. But I'm still nonetheless curious, do you feel, have you experienced overt or subversive discrimination in the in the industry because mm. of your race me personally never nice. i would have to say i've never felt unwelcome in the concert hall that's good ever since i was because i've been going to the concert hall since i was 10 and even growing up i can't i went to hear whoever was conducting or whatever was on the program but every time i found someone in there to talk to someone new to engage with you know because we were all there in the house of music to hear and experience uh, what was on the stage for everyone. You know, mm. it wasn't written for a specific person or group of people. It was written for everyone to, because, you know, music is a shared experience. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, whenever I go to the concert hall, and a lot of people are actually glad to see, you know, that someone young is up in there. You know, they're yeah. like, we need more young people in the concert hall. And I'm saying, I'm, I'm working on that, you know. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's, uh, I've just, even in my compositional life, I've gotten the chance to work in many different areas of the country with different orchestras. I've always met some very, very nice donors, very nice conductors, players, you know. Yeah. 
I've just I've had a great experience so far. You know, I'm, that's I'm glad. I'm glad that that's been your experience. And so your experience has been so positive. Do you, do you have any recommendations for what we as people who work for an orchestra, what can we do mm. to ensure that we have a welcoming environment for everybody at our orchestra? Oh, great. Well, I would have to say it starts very early. Education is the key. Um, you have to go into the schools. You have to do these outreach programs, give educational concerts, engage with the community so you can create that next generation of, um, of music lovers that love to come, come to the concert hall and don't even think about, you know, am I supposed to be here and things like that. They just come and they, they come to uh, experience and enjoy the music. And, and it all starts very early. I mean, it started for me when I was 10 because my very first concert – the Dallas Symphony concert, yeah. and they played Peter and the Wolf with Sting narrating. Uh, but it was just, it was so many kids up in there, you know, you didn't think about what color the kids were, or who, right. who they were, or where, where are they supposed to be. It was just wasn't that, it, you know, it, it because I had that very positive experience in the concert hall very, very early, mm. it showed me that, you know, like this music is for me, and I, you know, I can go to the concert hall and experience it whenever I want. So it definitely starts early. Education and um, engaging with the community, mm -hmm. I would have to say. Yeah, I'll get working. Here I am. Um, but I, kind of along the veins of recommendation as well, we've been asking our guests this season if they can give recommendations for the listeners of what they things to be engaging with. So maybe like in the in the theme of this conversation, maybe someone who's kind of new to classical music or only has been to a few concerts or mm -hmm. are just wanting to explore more. Do you have any recommendations of, of music or, or, or books or something that they should dive into to kind of help them understand this world a little bit better? Yeah, sure. So we have this thing called the 12 tone system. No. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. Music theory lesson. Let's go. Um, but no, I mean, if you're just starting out, um, you might want to explore. There are different periods of classical music that you might want to explore. You might want to start very, very early uh, in the Renaissance period uh, and kind of work your way up to the classical period and then the Romantic period. Um, and if you just search these periods up, you'll get some recommendations for some cool music from those periods. And then, you know, uh, the 20th century starts to get more adventurous, but you still get... <laughs> beautiful masterpieces that were written in the 20th century, mm -hmm. like um, the, uh, the Firebird of Stravinsky, yeah. a very accessible piece, I would have to say, mm -hmm. um, all the way up to um, even uh, the music that's being written today. The, the music of Jennifer Higdon is yeah. very mm -hmm. accessible, and she's a cool person, too. Cool yeah, lady. We did, cool uh, lady. We did her Blue Cathedral beautiful. in the season before the pandemic, yeah. uh, uh, 2019. That's fall. a piece to start with. That's it's a very such a beautiful piece. piece. Oh my god! It's a piece that's personal to her. It was written yeah. for her brother. Mm -hmm. Yes, and uh, it's a, a amazing, amazing piece to listen yeah. to. So um, that's a that's a piece from uh, the late twentieth century. Um, and that, that and just listening to that Higdon can show you that even you know beautiful music can be written today. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, really good recommendation. And may yeah. I just say. Your music, your music. Is also we'll just a put a plug in. To that. Nah, uh, <laughs> see, I, mean, I wanted to avoid myself. We're, we'll put a plug. Yeah, we're putting a plug we in. Quinn it. Mason. We can do it. <laughs> oh my god, amazing! That's awesome. Yeah, I, I, I remember the first time I heard uh, Blue Cathedral. Um, 
I think I heard it first with the Cleveland Orchestra, if I remember correctly. But the clarinet solo that kind of weaves itself throughout that piece is just, oh, it's beautiful. Such a good, such a good piece of music. And uh, a good friend of mine from graduate school was the principal clarinet sub on that concert. Oh, yes, so he really? it was. A, yeah, we needed someone, and uh, Gerhardt basically was calling everybody he could, and no one could do it. And I was finally like, I got a buddy who I think would love to do this. Yeah, when we did like it here, him. yeah. That's so good. Yeah. So, Quinn, you are also a conductor. Well, I'm still learning. <laughs> How did this aspect of who you are as a musician come to be? Again, that started from my going to rehearsals at the Dallas Symphony. Uh, watching the guest conductors come in and just seeing how they worked with the orchestra, how they got along. Some conductors got along better with the orchestra <laughs> than others, you know. Yeah. Um, but the different movements and things fascinated me. Plus, I grew up watching uh, a channel. It was a, like a local public access channel on um, TV in Texas. It's actually world um, nationwide. It's called the Classics Arts Showcase. Mm -hmm. Um, and you can actually watch it online. It's a very fascinating channel that runs excerpts of arts clips 24-7. So they'd show things from dance performances to symphony performances to um, classic movies, animation, okay. all that. So it's like um, they run like, a different clip every five minutes. So it's like a never-ending stream. Yeah. of. And they used to show all sorts of old clips of conductors in there, old, new clips. And uh, they used to show a lot of Herbert von Karajan and things like that. Uh, and so just watching those clips and then going to hear those really got me interested. I started conducting when I was in uh, high school. So I got some experience from a very supportive band director who loaned me his book on conducting. Nice. Allowed, not only allowed, allowed me to write for the band, but to conduct the band oh. as well. So I got to conduct them at the graduation Oh. And so um, twice. Um, and then um, I really started seriously studying in college, uh, started in community college. They would do this thing called student conductors where at the very end of each uh, school year, they would bring up students to conduct the band. So a lot of people did that. It was fun to play for them, too, That was because I was a percussionist in the band. Um, and I was uh, wondering that you were mentioning band, and I'm like, okay, he plays the piano, he played the cello. The what did he one? do in band? <laughs> no, I did percussion throughout my uh, high school and co college career. Fun. You know, broke a bass drum on Mahler four, <laughs> but that's a different story for a different time. But um, you know, doing that, I actually, some people told me I was good at it, so I was like, oh, I should do some workshops or things like that because you know. Um, really, there's no undergraduate degree in conducting. I mean, uh, one of um, one of my teachers, Miguel Hart-Bedoya, is actually trying to do that in uh, Omaha. I was literally just yes, about to say, there is one now at the University of Nebraska. Yeah, yeah that's Miguel. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Man, that's his dream, too. He wanted to establish a, an undergraduate conducting program, and he's doing it. But, um, yeah, when I was going, we had nothing like that. Miguel, had he was still at Fort Worth, and he hadn't done that yet so I had to go to workshop so I worked with, with Miguel for about three years uh, privately and in his workshops and then I um, got the chance to work at a higher level uh, this past summer where when I went to the National Orchestra Institute I studied with Marin Alsop uh, and um, yeah. James Ross and um, that was a very great experience so as to what I'll do in the future I don't know but I'm mostly uh, spending most of my craft is being learned because I'm not I'm not an assistant conductor. 
um, or a music director, uh, it's sporadic for me. Okay. So I get the chance to guest conduct from time to time. And so that's when I really have the chance to practice my craft. Right. But it, that only happens every, once every few months. Yeah. Next one happened in, in February. So very cool. Now, when you guest conduct, do you mostly do your own pieces or do you often get to do, yeah, you do yours. your own pieces mostly? Okay. Yeah. Helps a score study. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that actually, yeah, I have to go back and learn my own piece. Can you believe that? Yeah, <laughs> amazing. Um, well, so you you compose you you want to you've mentioned you want to conduct a little bit more, and you you're getting into that. Um, uh, what's that balance for you like? What do you do? You see yourself as a primary? Do you want to be a true composer conductor like some of the you know Esapeka Salomon yeah, yeah, or this, someone like that? Yeah, <laughs> I love Esapeka. Yeah, he's so one of my you, favorite living con conductors. Yeah. Oh my gosh. What do you see for yourself there? Something. Well, I know that uh, that's something I'm still trying to figure out right. because I know that that's uh, something that Leonard Bernstein had a problem with, you know, because he was music director of New York Philharmonic for a long time, but he uh, tried. He couldn't really find the balance between composing and conducting during that time. Mm -hmm. So he ended up having to, uh, he, you know, this is, you know, after that, he really never took a music director job ever again. Not like that, you know, but finding the balance, you know, music director can take up a lot of your time, which is why I'm very, very impressed that Esapeka could find <laughs> such an original voice as a composer, yet be music director of San Francisco, yeah. Los Angeles, and things like that. Yeah, uh, That's very impressive to me but then you have people like john adams another Ugh, um john. another in inspiration of mine who isn't a music director he has a position at uh the la phil as a creative chair yeah but he's not their music director so right. he only comes in he gets to conduct the orchestra once in a while he guest conducts his own music a lot because mm. he's john adams of course. Yeah. <laughs> but uh he, he, thomas addis who has a position at the boston symphony not a music director but he gets to go around conducting his Gosh. pieces, conducts the Boston Symphony from time to time. Yeah. So ideally, um, hopefully I want to end up with something like that. Gotcha. Where I have a position at an orchestra um, where I can just, um, you know, get to do my, uh, the, the education component of my composition career, mm -hmm. but also conduct the orchestra from time to time. Nice. And so mm -hmm. we're definitely, I have some things in the works. I'm actually um, doing something similar to that. Um, this February, where I'm serving as composer in residence with the Detroit Symphony, oh. but that same week I'm also serving as their cover conductor. Okay, okay, very, very cool. cool. Yeah, uh, John Adams, what a great inspiration. Uh, what What about John Adams inspires you? Is his music? Um, his music is very colorful I and mean, yeah. very colorfully orchestrated. Yeah. Very different. You know, he has the different time periods that he writes in, but it's all very. You know, accessible. And if you're still looking for recommendations yeah. <laughs> uh, for a piece to start with, the short ride in the fast machine. Short ride in the fast machine. Yeah. It's a very um, uh, popular piece. Very cool to listen it's so to. So rhythmic. His rhythms just ugh. It's Absolutely exciting. Yeah. It's yeah. Definitely worth listening to. Yeah. But like, I think that was my first exposure to John. Short ride fast machine. Short ride. Yeah. yeah. When I was in high school. He's such a cool guy too. Like I got the chance. You got to, to meet him. Yeah, I got oh. to meet him. And I got to show him my scores too. That wow. He actually made the time that he was, you know, they were trying to get him out for a radio interview and he <laughs> sat down and was like, Tell them to, to wait ten minutes and he looked at my scores. Aww. I was like, That's John Adams that just did that for me. <laughs> That's, That's amazing. So nice. One of my I think one of my favorite musical experiences was uh uh, uh watching Doctor Atomic. 
um, at the Santa Fe Opera, and that just a really, really great experience. And I saw the death of Klinghoffer at the Met, which was Ugh. oh boy, that's a it's heavy, but it's, it's, there's a lot. What a piece! Yeah, yeah. yeah. So okay, we're now on the topic here of new music, yeah. living composers. Yeah. Gerhardt said in his podcast episode a long time ago now, or not a long, long time ago, but ago. in the first season, the second Viennese school caused a lot of people to be afraid of new music. That music is not generally the new music that is heard yeah. to, in today's concert hall, nor the music that living composers today are writing. How can you as a composer and us as the people who are going to program the music, including new music, what can we do to <laughs> help break down those fears yeah. that people have? It's all in creative programming, I would have to say. If you find a way to effectively program a piece, so the, the entire concert, it doesn't have to be a themed concert, but somehow find the, how the pieces relate back to each other, whether the composers are distant cousins or whatever. Mm -hmm. And just seeing how the different pieces of music, it's almost like building a really good meal mm -hmm. whenever you're doing programming. Um, that's a great yeah, analogy. That's, a, great that's analogy. a wonderful analogy. I just got hungry now. <laughs> yeah, same. But like, <laughs> if you go, if you just think of yourself as a chef in the kitchen and you got to put together this plate for this, very discriminating guests, but you want them to have a certain flavor palette. Like you want something salty to uh, blend with something sweet. You got to find an effective way to do that. And with your programming, if you want to have the Barrick Violin Concerto on there, you got to follow that up with something uh, like the Schoenberg Transfigured Night, because you know Barrick was a student of Schoenberg, and so um, you know you have the things, and you can do like the Webern in Sommerwind, which is actually a very early work of Weber and it's very tonal like it it's, doesn't sound like him at all <laughs> but if you want to have all these three composers on that program that's a possible program but right. if you want to like do it nowadays where you introduce a new composer on the program uh you know if you have like a, a great example is um uh, the Beethoven seventh symphony if you want to introduce the music of Carlos Simon on your program mm -hmm. Is a, he's a new uh, black composer. Uh, he's also a friend of mine. Yeah. Um, you can also do you can do his Fate Now Conquers, which is um, quite interesting because it was written as a response to the Beethoven Seventh oh, Symphony. Oh, okay, that's and nice. And so by programming that Beethoven, which people are going to come for, come for, right. they're going to come for that. Yeah. But you can also introduce them to Carlos Simon. Yeah. We're doing something very similar uh, in February. With, We're with doing Rick, yeah. Sibelius Symphony Number no. Three and Rick Robinson's essay on Sibelius, yeah. which is based on the Third Symphony. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Yeah, you know what might be interesting if that that's a great program, and if I were to take that same program and take it to another orchestra, I would put at the very beginning of it William Grant Stills' Elegy in the Memory of Sibelius. Threnody in Memory of Sibelius. It's interesting that, that you, you bring, the, yeah, yeah. bring that up because. The Youth Symphony in that. their next concert cycle is playing Sibelius One, and the concert will also feature sure. still yes. Threnody in memory of John Sibelius. Yeah. Yes. Wow. The, the score and parts are sitting uh, on the desk <laughs> over there if you want to yeah, see them. Yeah. Awesome. Well, so like 
the future of the orchestra, the future of composition. What do you see as the future of orchestral composition? I know with, you know, bringing in, you know, folk, you know, bringing in folk traditions has been common for a long time. Uh, you know, Bar talked to everyone has brought in like folk traditions. Vaughn Williams, Vaughn Williams, my favorite composer. Yes, we know. <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> well, Quinn didn't now, know. That's now true. Quinn knows. Now Quinn knows. But what do you see as, you know, we're bringing, we're still, you know, taking from folk music what other what do you see as the future of orchestral composition moving forward is what are you seeing from your friends like carlos simon and other people um well like i said that carlos simon was written in response to the beethoven mm -hmm. um definitely we're going to see a lot of um pieces for contemporary composers that um reflect on the, uh, the composers that came before us mm -hmm. and things like that even uh one of my current commissions is going to be a prelude to the Beethoven Ninth Symphony called On the Note of Joy. Oh. Uh, and basically uh, looking at Beethoven, the, the impact of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony almost several years, hundreds of years after it was premiered. And you're going to find a lot of composers looking at the impact of the composers that came before us mm -hmm. and responding to that to a new generation in right. order to make sure that that composer or work is now accessible to um a um, now newer generation of right. concert goers because right. a lot of people say that, you know, the orchestra is a museum and we're starting to play things that people have heard a thousand times. But, you know, you can play it as many times as you want. You just got to make it fresh. You know, right. you got to find a way to make sure it sounds new every time you play it or put a new perspective on it, you know. So um, a lot of younger composers, I would have to say, are kind of looking back and doing that looking forward at the same time yeah. yeah we've talked many times about the dual role of an orchestra as both a museum and a gallery a museum as in playing the pieces that came before us the beloved core repertoire because the only way that it's experienced live is if we play it unlike a painting that hangs always in an art gallery uh, an art museum People can see it whenever they want, but for people to see the standard rep live, someone has to play it. But we, of course, also have the gallery role as well to introduce new art and artists to the to the world. Cool. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so as we're kind of like, you know, coming to the end of this conversation, sadly, um, we've, we've talked a lot about you know, accessibility and bringing in the new and we you're talking about new music and, you know, you've been a part of the orchestra from such a young age and so have I and so have you. And I don't remember uh, the first time I went to the orchestra. It was, I was quite, quite young. Yeah. I, yeah. It's, what do you, what do, what do we do? How do we get more young people involved, more diverse audiences involved in what we all three love so much about, about the symphony, do you think? Well, I mean, it kind of goes back to what I said earlier about the whole education, education. thing. But, it, you know, that when I was saying education, I was specifically referring to the younger, you know, kids, mm -hmm. you know. But if you want to involve, like, those who have never been to a classical music concert before who are adults, right. then that right there, um, that requires a lot of community engagement right there. You have to take a string quartet into the community center or give like these public concerts, you know, uh, the Dallas symphony is doing something right now called the, 
the concert truck, almost a fire truck, the concert <laughs> truck, where they're, you know, they have like Dallas Symphony musicians and they take them around the city in the concert truck. The New York Philharmonic did something similar this past summer where they had a, like a pickup truck. And they, they, and they, you know, put, or was it a van? I can't remember. It was one of those two, but yeah. they put musicians in there and they put them, they, they took them around New York to play on like, you know, in Central Park and on public sidewalks and things like yeah. that. And that's basically to kind of give people a taste of what's going on in uh, the music now, what, what it's like for, uh, to experience live music mm -hmm. with actual musicians and hopefully, you know, kind of entice them to come to a classical music concert, you know, whether it be a, a piano recital or a string quartet or even a symphony concert, you know. That form of communicate uh, engagement I found that, uh, has been very successful and um, definitely uh, uh, boosts attendance, I would have to say. Yeah. yeah. So we always end every episode of the podcast by asking our guests the same question. <laughs> it's very open-ended. <laughs> so answer however you feel moved. How do we orchestrate change? Start early. Um, like just like I said, start early, but it is not. It is. It's not. It's not too late to start. Right. It's not too late to start. You can. Um, there's always something you could do at any time, in order to um, spread the good wheel, good wheel, good will of of um, of music, yeah. and the joy and beauty of live performance. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, I would have to say that. Love that. Excellent. This, Quinn, Quinn, this has just been really fun. This has been a good time talking with you. It's, you know, it's it's nice to just, you know, talk about the music that we love and, and to see someone who is a composer right now writing music for just a lot of people to experience. And I love the way that your attitude is towards the music that you write. I think it's really... I think it's going to make people connect to the music and we obviously are seeing that because a lot of people are playing your music. So I've, I've enjoyed this. This has been really great. I have to say it's been particularly awesome to have you here. Yeah. With yeah. Us it's been really person. nice. It's, there's a synergy in the conversation yeah. that's different than, than on over zoom. Yeah. So again, we're so thrilled that you're with us yeah. to hear your piece, Irish dance suite yeah. performed this weekend. And thank you again for joining us. Thank you for having me. Enjoy it. <laughs> Quinn Mason, composer and conductor, whose Irish dance suite was performed by the Canton Symphony Orchestra. Orchestrating Change is a production of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. Our theme music was composed by Eric Gould and performed by Derek Snyder and Tim Adams. Our audio engineer and mixer is Nathan Maslick with video and audio editing by Shoreline Media. Thank you for listening and see you next time.